This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. Hey, everybody. Welcome to EMS 2020. I'm going back to the pauses uh, just because some fans mentioned it (laughs) lately. We got we've been getting some fan mail. We don't get that much. Um, It's pretty rare. And we got some recently that was uh, touching, to say the least. And um, yeah, they made a reference to the pause uh, and they also sent us beer. Uh, So I'm going to now give out Spencer's home address. So if anyone needs to keep sending beer. This is where it's going to go. <laughs> Speaking uh, okay. of, I uh, I am doing this sober this week uh, <laughs> because I learned something. You know, I learned something last week, and that is I cannot I cannot work all night, like get three hours of sleep and then like be up all day and then drink a beer before recording a podcast without sounding just fucking incredibly drunk. Okay. Maybe not incredibly drunk. Like I didn't really slur no, per se. No, you didn't. But I, I just seem to want to cut the corner on finishing saying a couple of yeah. words. <laughs> and speaking of cutting. <laughs> and I noticed even a uh, like a wrong word or two at a certain point. Anyway, that uh, must have been a lot of fun to edit. Thank yeah. you for what you do, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was all good, though. I, I You know what? If it, That was one where I think we, we admitted partway through the recording that uh, or I, even I was like, I think I'm just going to keep screwing up so that I can like prove my value like we're just gonna keep making it hard to do so that you can't get rid of me and then then that's it but anyway everybody welcome to another episode of ems 2020 uh this is the show where we review real calls sent in from out of hospital providers uh my name is chris that is spencer uh spencer how are you today uh sober and it's great mm, so good perfect and you got some water this time instead of whatever so um (laughs) Actually, it's weird I mean, that I it can't. burns when I sip it. <laughs> Where'd you get the water? <laughs> Was it given to you from a priest? Because that could be your problem. <laughs> but yeah, I, neither of us actually uh, were going to take home the sobriety award from that last recording. So don't feel too guilty about that. All right. So before we get started into today's episode, uh, which uh, could be a long one, I've been told by Spencer. So um, ooh, strap in. Uh, let's go ahead and see if we can't get you guys to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at EMS 20 slash 20 EMS 2020 show on Instagram. And if you want to send us an email, uh, particularly if you want to send us an email about a call that you ran that you would like us to go over, you can do that at EMS 2020 podcast at gmail.com. And with that, Spencer, uh, you ready to, uh, to deliver the goods? I'm ready to deliver. So deliver here we go. Goods. We're going to, you know what? We're going to switch it up a little bit. Today, we're talking about the system. The system in tonight's story is as follows. This is a hospital-based EMS system, though their flagship main hospital, the main layer, is not in our medic stretch of service area. So let's talk about our medic's service area. Our medic service area is a long but relatively narrow stretch of highway. It's about 800 square miles in total. And at each end uh, and in the middle of this highway are stations which the crews run out of. The stations do have priorities. So if like one station goes out on a call, others can be moved up or moved down to cover it. Um, 
The ambulances in this service are typically staffed medic EMT, though some of the EMTs have additional certifications that allow them to perform more advanced skills like IV starts, medication administration, more airway options, etc. And the shifts are 12 hours in length. Oh, hey, is this one of those systems where so when you're saying that you're like you're saying they can, you know, getting additional certifications to allow them to perform more advanced skills like IV starts. Is this kind of like that a la carte system where it's like they're an EMT basic, but then can be certified to be an EMT basic that does IVs or. Um, you know, I'm to be honest, I'm not sure. Um, it could be that, uh, it could be just like, Hey, this is an EMT advanced that you're working with today. Or like, here's your intermediate, or it could be like, yeah, they're getting signed off to do additional things. I, actually i'm not sure is this a more uh, rural system it is okay so hey here's the thing so what i'm talking about is there are actually these a la carte kind of certification systems where you can certify on individual skills without getting a whole new certification level right so normally you'd have like your emt basic and that lets you do certain skills and then you can be your advanced and that comes with its menu or scope of practice really of skills that you can select from um, but there are some systems where basically what you have is you don't really see these in urban systems, but in rural systems, uh, oftentimes there's very few paramedic positions available because you really don't see uh, the same kind of budget that you would in an urban system out in the rural system. So they don't have a lot of paramedics because we're expensive. And yeah. so you don't have an abundance of responders that are really willing to go to school to get their paramedic because financially that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, why would you go get a cert and pay for getting a cert for a very limited position that you won't be able to get? And so oftentimes if they do get their paramedic certs, they go elsewhere. So these a la carte systems are very helpful in these communities because then responders can help in more ways. They can increase their scope without the financial and time commitment of going and getting their EMT advanced or their paramedic certificate. They just get these individual certifications. Um, so yeah, these things are these kind of systems are cool when they're when they're put in, in into place in systems that can really use them. Yeah, no, I I like it. There, yeah, I mean, we have one of our neighboring agencies for our ground service that you know the EMTs can get IV cert you know, IV certified. So um, mm. yeah, I like it. Anyway. Um, yeah, like you pointed out, and like we said already, this is a pretty rural area. The service runs about 3,500 calls per year. Um, there is a volunteer fire department in this area, which typically staffs EMTs or like first responder EMRs. Um, this fire department responds to medical calls, but they do have limited equipment, you know, usually like an AED, glucometer, O2, that sort of thing. They are described as competent and participatory for the level, which is excellent. And there are also two hospitals in this area. And we'll go into more, uh, we'll go more into those during this call. At least one of those hospitals definitely utilizes this ambulance uh, service to kind of drip and ship patients who need higher levels of care to facilities. Drip and ship? Yeah, drip and ship. What's drip Start and the drip. ship? Start the drips, <laughs> ship them out. That's awesome. Yeah. Drip and ship. Got it. Yeah, hey, this Norfolk should probably keep that blood pressure present. Uh, yeah. go. <laughs> All right. Go. Get them out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Let them die elsewhere. Not here. <laughs> right. It's a lot. Um, so because of this, the crews do get some training right on getting hired in critical care. But from the sounds of it, it's probably not the most in-depth course like i would not take their in-house training and then go test for an fpc 
Gotcha. Uh, a lot of the training is focused on like, hey, this is our transport ventilator. Um, by the way, the service does have a ventilator, and boy, we'll touch on that later. Um, <laughs> and they have like IV pumps for transport, and like, hey, so here's how to use them. But again, it's mostly like, hey, this is how you set it up, silence it, and uh, troubleshoot those pumps. This isn't the class wherein you learn like about like all the medications you might be, you know, coming into contact with and like, and their nuances and all of that. Um, but again, like, yeah, that's just getting hired. So uh, a lot of time, these hospitals will try and fly these patients out anyway, when possible. And speaking of flying, calling for a medevac is also available to ground crews on their 911 calls. So got all that. Good, because now just forget everything <laughs> I said about flight being available Perfect. to the crews, because this call takes place on a snowy January day, and the snowfall has only increased, and the snowplows are just try- they're just trying to keep up on that main stretch of highway and kind of doing a meh job of it. The side Good. roads, going to the houses and stuff, haven't even been touched. And flying in this weather, well, that's just not an option. So this crew will be on their own. Mm. So who is this crew? <laughs> Today's call features... I'm so excited. Stool Storm Call Bringer. Stool uh, Storm. Full disclosure, <laughs> I wanted to go with Shitstorm Call Bringer, yeah. but we already swear gratuitously on this yeah. uh, podcast, <laughs> and uh, I reference this guy uh, huh. quite a bit. And it mm. just... It seemed... I could I could yeah, not say just, this. I couldn't say his name and then like later say ah fuck without just <laughs> making it just like the like feel like we were just swearing at everybody. I'm for gonna an point hour. out in your explanation for why we're calling it stool storm call bringer. You have yeah. you you've you've sworn like 18 times or you sweared sworn? I don't know what it is. Sworn. Yeah, you you, you cursed you've cursed like 18 <laughs> times to explain how you don't want to keep cursing throughout the rest of the uh, the rest of the podcast. But uh but yeah, you know what? All good. Let's do it. All right. So stool storm call bringer, a 14 year medic uh, who does actually come with critical care training. Nice. Uh, They will be working alongside their partner. Unlucky. A 20 year (laughs) EMT. (laughs) So here's the call. The foreshadowing is thick. It's 1229. Stool storm call bringer stares out the station window, watching the whirlwind of white snow falling from an ever darkening sky. They clutch a fresh cup of hot chocolate in their grizzled hand. They've run two calls already, but they know more are out there, waiting, biding their time. They take a sip of their chocolate and turn to their partner, unlucky, with a fresh whipped cream mustache. Something's coming. I can feel it. Oh my god. This is awful. <laughs> unlucky sips their own liquid chocolate mug and waves a hand dismissively. Ah, you're just paranoid. You've always been paranoid. When you've seen the things I've seen, you'd be paranoid too. Ooh. One minute and exactly 11.34 seconds later, the tone sounded at their station. Guys, we're at 1230 and 1134. Go ahead. There's an elderly female out there somewhere, unresponsive and in need of medical aid. Oh, gosh. Okay, go ahead. Unlucky groans. I can't believe you called that. Stoolstorm Callbringer says nothing. Because he doesn't they need empty, to. 
They empty their mug of scalding hot chocolate in one epic swallow and then turn to Unlucky. This is what I do. Drink chocolate and save lives. Stoolstorm slams their now empty mug upside down on the table and narrows their eyes. And I'm all out of chocolate. Jesus Christ. <laughs> By the way, you the medic a- who gave us a, the medic who gave us this call, like totally not this cringy in real life. At least not from what I could tell, like for talking to them for an hour the other day. <laughs> I'm gonna point something out. The awkward endings go at the ending. <laughs> we're 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 front loading them. Um, <laughs> okay, gotcha. This, no, 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 the reason I did like they're just this is just one of those medics who in, who seem to encounter the more complex calls at a far higher rate than their peers, and you know, and like oftentimes in EMS, we'll use terms like like white cloud or dark cloud or shit magnet to provide you know like to describe providers and their proclivity for running. Uh, we'll call them EMS 2020 worthy calls. <laughs> That's fair. That's yeah, that's good. <laughs> so that's why I've dubbed this guy stool storm call bringer because we're beyond magnet levels here. Gotcha. So, gotcha. Yeah. It's just his presence just basically beckons the uh beckons the <laughs> shitty calls. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Fair enough. All right. All right. Terrible call tempest. That's what I should have gone with. Oh, dang it. Oh, that's all right, uh, though. You're doing mm. good. <laughs> so it's 12.32. The crew departs their station en route to the report of the unresponsive female. The address of the call is at a private residence, which would usually be about 10 minutes or so away, but it will take this crew 18 minutes to get there with the snowy conditions. On the way to the address, the fire department, who has arrived on scene already, updates the incoming ambulance to let them know that this is going to be a stroke alert. The ambulance arrives to a split-level house, described as, you know, like, good-looking, well-kept. The crew enters the home and heads upstairs to the master... That's how I am often described. Exactly. Yeah, good enough. Uh, (laughs) Heads upstairs to the master bedroom. That is not what I said, actually, but... um, (laughs) Isn't it, though? No, no. Good-looking and (laughs) well-kept. I said good. No, you said good. I included good. Uh, Well, whatever. No, you, you're better than good, buddy. You're great enough. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Enough. So the, they enter the master bedroom where the patient is. So from the doorway, Stoolstorm Callbringer sees the following. There's a female patient, aged about 64 years, laying in bed. She's 5'10", 160 pounds, and she is breathing very fast and deep with a non-rebreather mask over her face. Her eyes are open to loud voices, but she doesn't respond further. Her skin looks dry and maybe like palish, maybe. The room has the faint odor of kind of ketones about it and notably doesn't at all smell like urine or poo. Okay, good. Seeing the patient, Stoolstorm Callbringer's mind jumps right I'm to... I'm going to guess... Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I'm going to guess he's thinking... He's probably thinking DKA. D, oh, Jesus, fuck me. He's probably thinking... <laughs> he's probably thinking DKA. Yeah, I, I mean, that would be my first thought, too. And really, for me, like, just because of the breathing, that rapid, deep breathing. Yeah. But yeah. The fire department gives the following report. The patient is unresponsive and has a blood pressure of 170 over 90 and a heart rate of 140. 
The fire responders say they've attempted a blood glucose check several times, but they keep getting an error message. The fire department thinks stroke because they were told that the altered mental status is sudden, and they noticed an odd finding. The patient does move when they do a finger poke in the left hand, but doesn't move when they finger poke in the right hand. So oh. they believe that this could be a stroke. I actually really like that kind of thought process right there. I think that's a really awesome thing that they did right there. Because you and I have talked about how in the past, um, sometimes when people can't cooperate with the stroke scale, you have to look elsewhere. So, I mean, I don't I don't know how this call ends up, but but I'm impressed with little things like that. I like that. That's that's people paying attention. Good on that crew. I like that. Yeah. So stool storm call bringer talks to the husband who is present in the room and starts to get more details. But Chris, you are now shit. I mean, stool storm. Hmm. <laughs> what would you like to know from family? I think at this point you should have just left it as shit. Storm. Uh, so, yeah, I guess if I'm interviewing family on this call, family is a great way to start obtaining that sample history. So sample stands for uh, the S is for signs, symptoms, um, which is mostly going to be, you know, what they observed, especially in this patient who isn't responding appropriately. A is allergies. M, medications. P is past pertinent medical history. L is last oral intake. And uh, E is events leading up to. Here's the thing, though. I tend to do sample out of order. I don't want to recommend that for everybody because, you know, do it in the order that helps you get the answers. But I do it out of order because I find that it can be really difficult to keep like panicking and concerned bystanders on track. And so I do it differently. I kind of like to reorder it kind of how conversation flows. So I don't do sample. I actually do SEPMAL, um, S-E-P-M-A-L. It's the same stuff, but here's the reason why. Like, so if you were to do sample history, for example, you'd be like, uh, so for this guy, I would say, hey, look, I see that your wife seems to be breathing heavy. She's not really responding appropriately. Are there any other symptoms that you've noticed that I'm not seeing? And kind of let them fill in the gaps there. And then mm. sample history would have you go, okay, does she have any allergies? And does she take any medications? Tell me about her medical history. What was the last thing she ate? And what's going to be what's going to be weird is they're going to be on the track of telling you what they saw and what happened. And then you're going to shift them to a med list that they might have to go then find and then to try and then bring it back to events leading up to later on. And I just don't like that order. So I do SEPMAL. I do signs and symptoms and events leading up to is kind of one amalgamation of both. So I'm like, hey, yeah. This is what I'm seeing. What are you seeing and what led up to this? And then I get the S and the E there. And then it's like, okay, does she have a history of this happening before? No? Okay, well, what kind of medical history does she have? And that'll get you your P, your past pertinent medical history. A question I always ask, like, hey, has this happened before? Because that can give you a lot of clues as to kind of what. Yeah, exactly. I mean, don't rely on that all the time. And the other thing, too, is it used to be past pertinent medical history. Be careful with that because I, I don't see the point in saying past pertinent medical history because you just need to ask them for the medical history because you don't want to rely on them to tell you what's pertinent, right? Because they're not you. Mm-hmm. They're not trained. So just get the past medical history and then their di- a list of their diagnosis if you have them and then go from there and then it's up to you to determine what's pertinent. Uh, and then after that, I go down, yeah, okay, medications, allergies, and then what was the last thing they ate is usually the last thing uh, that I asked just because... You know, we're human. We They don't know anything about sample history. And so they're not going to speak in that way. And they don't know what we're going for. And if you present it like that, you can kind of get them off track. And so anyway, that's the way I do it. That's what I'd be yeah. getting from this guy is a sample history. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So 
here is the history of present illness that stool storm Callbringer obtains. The patient has been ill for about a week. And I, uh, I did clarify the term ill to mean like fever, chills, and like generalized malaise. The patient went to an urgent care yesterday and was diagnosed with a sinus infection and prescribed antibiotics. She's taken two doses so far and hasn't yet shown any signs of improvement. The patient says that he woke up with her around 6.30 that morning, they had breakfast together, and then the patient went back to bed like, not really feeling well, and uh, maybe around 7.30 a.m. The husband then heard the patient using the bathroom around 8.30 but, and then hadn't heard anything since. They went in to check on the patient around noon and found them to be like this and called 911. The patient's baseline mental status is alert and oriented. They have no medical history except for the sinus infection. They are taking azithromycin, and they are allergic to penicillin. The husband reports that no one has been, no one else has been ill in their home. And by the way, this call does take place sort of just prior to COVID. The last time a patient saw a doctor, aside from an urgent care, was three years ago. So you might have questions. But let's hold those for a moment and let me go into the assessment and vitals as those are being taken or being performed simultaneously while that report was being gathered. Uh, and by the way, this assessment is almost verbatim from like what was sent in. And I very much appreciate the attention to the detail. So here is the assessment under the head, ears, eyes, nose, throat. No emesis or secretions noted. Mucous membranes are noted to be dry. There's no trauma. And patient does not track with her eyes. The pupils are sluggish but reactive bilaterally at three millimeters. There's no um, JVD present, uh, jugular vein distension. Uh, there's no snoring noted during the respirations. On the chest, there's no accessory muscle use. The Kussmaul's respirations are noted. Those are those like really fast, really deep breaths. Ronchi are present bilaterally in the bases of the lung sounds, both right and left, and the uppers are clear, and there are no signs of trauma noted. Moving on to the abdomen pelvis, there is abdominal movement noted with respirations. There isn't a seesaw pattern, and a seesaw pattern, by the way, is sort of like, it's a weird, it's a very weird um, pattern that's present between your chest and your abdomen. You should Google it and like YouTube it. Um, and it's sort of a sign of an, like a partial obstruction. The way I think of a seesaw pattern is just imagine like if you put a seesaw inside of somebody with one end of the seesaw uh, underneath the sternum and the other end of the seesaw underneath the belly button and that seesaw just started going up and down on its own. That is a seesaw pattern. You'll have the abdomen mm. will distend and go out and chest will recess uh, and then the opposite will occur. The chest will... Um, enlarge and inflate and puff out i guess I, that's the wrong term but um <laughs> yeah the chest no, it's, it's, how about this? The, the chest will become prominent and then the abdomen will, will recess so that's it's that's the perfect. seesaw pattern yeah uh again it's uh you should youtube it it's a pretty cool thing to to notice anyway abdomen soft no masses there's no rigidity there's no guarding uh the pelvis is stable non-tender and there's no incontinence noted uh, looking at the extremities and back, the cap refill is less than two seconds on the extremities, and the medic is unable to assess motor or sensory in the limbs because the patient's altered. And occasionally, they notice that the patient spontaneously will shrug their shoulders, um, but it's really only the one side. The patient's back is unremarkable. 
The skin is very warm to touch, possibly febrile. It's dry. They didn't get a temperature because the only thermometer available to the crew is those like very cheap and <laughs> just in- incredibly inaccurate, like disposable <laughs> paper thermometer things. So Perfect. Yeah, no one's no the, one's doing that. Those, the, the, the temp dots. Yeah. The, yeah. Yep. Uh, which I, regarding, oh, go I, on. Yeah, I, I will say I, I have worked or I've been a part of systems where those have been busted out. And I've been like, no, don't don't do them because they're going to be very inaccurate. And we're just going to waste time to get a measurement that I'm not going to trust. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, that's that that is unnecessary. Please don't do it. Oh, did you pull out blotter paper? Dude, wow. Sweet. You like someone taking a CBG, with like, <laughs> a CBG with like the old color changing papers. <laughs> nice. Oh, I bet they're really acidic. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. So moving on to the neuro assessment, E3, V1, M4. So that's a GCS of eight. Um, it's not like we were playing Battleship, actually, but. Right. There's no tonic clonic movement observed, no rhythmic movements noted, no tongue bites noted. There's no gaze deviation. The patient seems to make very brief kind of eye contact infrequently for like less than two seconds. The left shoulder shrugging is noted spontaneous. There's no facial droop noted. The medic is unable to assess the patient's speech because the patient will not talk or cannot talk. There's no obvious movements noted on the right side during contact, and the patient doesn't follow commands when asked to do things like shrug their shoulder. Uh, They notice withdrawal behavior uh, to pain on the left with nothing on the right. By the way, this service uses the fast ed stroke assessment, which utilizes a point system. And so some of you might be wondering what that scale is, and I looked it up, and so here it is real quick. So they assess a couple different categories, and there's a point system. And if the point system is greater than four, then it's considered like a large vessel occlusion stroke, so a very serious stroke. Um, So facial palsy, there's zero points for no or minor facial, like paralysis, one point for facial paralysis. For arm drift, uh, there's zero points for no arm drift, one point for some drift or like minor effort against gravity, and then two points for no movement or effort against gravity. Then you look at speech. It's zero points if they're able to speak normally. One point for mild to moderate speech deficits. Two points for severe or global aphasia, mute. And specifically, like you ask uh, questions to the patient uh, and then like and speak to them to make that like to try and get them to follow commands. And so like you're measuring kind of two things like can they speak and can they comprehend speech? So, okay. There's eye deviation, zero points if there's no eye deviation, one point for a partial deviation, two points for like forced deviation. So that's where like the eyes are just locked in one side and they are, that's where they look in. Um, <laughs> and, and then this, this one is really interesting. This is called <clears throat> denial le- neglect. Um, okay. So an example of a denial neglect assessment would be to have the person like look at their weak arm or something on the affected side and then ask them like, do you feel weakness in this arm and have them respond? Yes or no. And then the next question is whose arm is this? And if the patient doesn't recognize their arm, that's two points. If the patient doesn't recognize like the weakness, then it's just one point. 
And if they answer correctly, then it's zero points. And by the way, it, like, don't do the denial and neglect bit if like the patient can't understand you or isn't able to talk because obviously that won't work. That won't work. Yeah. Stool storm call bringer. They come up with a score greater than four. So per their stroke assessment, this would be considered a large vessel occlusion stroke. Okay. All right. So while this assessment and history are being done, the patient was placed on the monitor by unlucky. We have vitals with the heart rates 140, regular, strong. We have a blood pressure of 190 over 110. Okay. We have an SpO2 of 100% on that non-rebreather uh, by the fire EMRs. Uh, we have a uh, respiration rate of 32 and deep and a blood glucose of 507 milligrams per deciliter. Oh, wow. Okay. And by the way, for those using the millimole system, we divide that by 18, which yields us 28.16 millimoles. Yeah. Maybe maybe Canadians can be like, oh, hey there. (laughs) Maybe that's my swearing is like, I just divide it by 18 in my head. So I say it 18 times, but to me, it sounds like one. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, you're on the Canadian system of swearing. I'm on the Canadian system of swearing, exactly. Oh wow! All right, there we go. Um, uh, let's see here. A four lead is applied, showing sinus tack without QRS widening or peaked T waves. Oh, and they put the patient on an end tidal CO2 cannula, and they captured an end tidal of about eight to twelve with reliable capture waveform present on their monitor. So, Chris, thoughts so far? So, my thoughts so far on this are there's a lot going on in this patient. Um, and we, <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't quite gone down mentally my normal altered LOC route. And, you know, so and I've talked about this before, but I'll kind of go down it because that that's how this needs to be looked at. We got to back up and let's just start looking at everything that could be wrong with this patient. Uh, so before I really explain what my immediate actions would be, I kind of want to like catch you guys up to speed on like where I would be on this call. So my first thing is always this. Does the brain have a fuel supply? So does it have a blood pressure? Yes, it has quite the blood pressure. 190 over 110. Does it have oxygen? She's setting at 100%. I've never seen 101. So I'm going to say 100%. Pretty good. But that's that's tops. Uh, and the next thing is, does it have sugar? Yes, it has a lot of sugar. It has too yeah. much sugar. But it has a lot of sugar. The next thing I always ask is like, uh, is it broken? Uh, is there uh, by chance a recent history of head trauma? We don't really know if, if I'm recalling correctly from what you told us so there, far, Spence. We so the, we don't know via history. It sounds unlikely. The assessment sort of the assessment doesn't indicate any. Yeah trauma and it doesn't sound like a likely like a likely thing given what's going Mm -hmm. on but it should always be considered even when it sounds silly because then you get to have your dr house moment someone's like oh yeah she did take a baseball bat to the face yesterday i forgot to tell you about (laughs) and everyone's like how did you know to ask but anyway uh and then the next thing when i come down to the is it broken is is there a stroke uh and when it comes down to is it a stroke that's that 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 is a front runner in this case Mm-hmm. A stroke is absolutely a forerunner in this case, particularly with that that blood pressure. Um, what I would like to know, uh, and then of course on their scale, she got uh, a four. 
um, which mm-hmm. in their protocol says stroke. So I think stroke is, is a huge possibility. But then the next thing after, you know, is it broken? I like to kind of look into uh, metabolic problems. Okay. Yeah. So and I haven't really talked about these in the past, but metabolic problems, uh, and I kind of lump it in. I, I hate to lump it in like this, but it's just like the other shit column. And that's going to be metabolic problems. Uh, for example, DKA uh, or HHS. Uh, we have a great episode on that, by the way. And those are also both possibilities because this patient, especially with the ketone odor that they talked about when they got into the room, the blood glucose yeah. being pretty high. So those are also on the list, in which case fluid may be indicated for this patient. Um, the next thing I start thinking about is sepsis. Are they septic? Yep. Could be. <laughs> Maybe. They really could be, especially when we start looking at this respiratory rate that's actually kind of going crazy on us and a, and a low end title, a really low end title. And, you know, and the yeah. recent infection that yeah. they're taking antibiotics for. Exactly. Illness so, for a week. Yeah. So they have all these things. So my thoughts so far is she could have DKA. She could be having a stroke uh, and she could be septic. She could be all three. The body does not care. The body doesn't just say, I can only pick one shit. What's it going to be? It could be easily be all three of these things i would fucking hate if it was but shit um so here's my biggest thought right now on this patient i would be wanting to get this patient moving and i'm going to go with stroke and the reason i would want to go down the stroke route is this because of all these things stroke is the only one that is going to likely require a specific type of hospital and in mm-hmm. my system. And I don't know, there's, I know you said we're going to talk about the hospital types in a little bit in the yeah. system that I work in uh, LVO or large vein occlusion uh, strokes require specific hospitals that we go to given like a certain time frame requirement as well. Sure. Like, you know, can't be too far away. Um, but that uh, is a requirement. And to me, that is the one that's going to require a specific hospital. So I'm going to do that. That doesn't mean I necessarily think that it is definitely a stroke. It's just that I can't tell if it's a stroke or these other two things. So I would yeah. be, so what I would do is I'd be beaten feet uh, towards, uh, towards one of the LVO uh, hospitals in my area. Now the next kind of thing kind of comes up here with a high blood sugar like that. Do we want to start giving this patient fluid? And on one mm. hand, you'd be like, okay, fighting high blood sugar like that, like, yeah, like fluids usually administered for higher blood glucoses. But this patient's blood pressure is astronomical. Do we really want to add volume to the system if they are stroking out? Could that make it worse? And so this is kind of one of those candidates that I would probably probably start eyeing the OLMC thing right now. Mm. Jesus. Anyway. Yeah. So, so there we go. Okay. Maybe Jesus. a little longer of a diatribe than you wanted, but you got it. All right, so Stool Storm Callbringer recognizes this is an extremely sick patient and wants to move them out to the ambulance and get going ASAP. The patient is placed on a mega mover and taken out to the stretcher via four-person carry. Stool Storm Callbringer said they did their best to try and keep the patient's head elevated to about 45 degrees during the move, and once they were on the stretcher, the patient's head was kept elevated in a nice neutral position. The non-rebreather mask is taken off once they're in the ambulance. Hey, real quick. Look, uh, a lot of EMS protocols will call for the head of the bed, by the way, to be elevated uh, anywhere from uh, above zero to typically around 30 degrees. Um, but in some cases, even higher than that. 
Those who say lay them flat do so because uh, it's often thought that laying people flat improves blood flow, though there is a higher risk of aspiration, you know, should they vomit. So those in the head elevated camp think there is a decrease in the risk of increasing cranial pressure. And I have been curious about this a lot um, because I have I, I can distinctly recall going into ERs with people who don't have their head elevated and having nurses be like, guys, head Elevated stroke. I'm just being like looking at me like I'm a giant fucking idiot and I am, but that's not why. Um, so I've looked it up. Uh, so which camp is right? Uh, I did see uh, the results of a randomized controlled trial in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this study took place, uh, I think it was 2017. It's been a while since I've looked at it. Uh, and they had, uh, about like 11,000 patients randomized into different arms. Uh, <laughs> One arm was weaker than the other. I'm just kidding. Anyway, uh, so, uh, but anyway, they found uh, absolutely zero clinically significant differences between the head elevated and the non uh, head elevated group, even between thromboembolic and hemorrhagic uh, strokes. So uh, they were even like, well, what about aspiration? Yeah, again, no difference. So it turns oh, out. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it might not. It might not matter. Um, but you know, <laughs> basically you all do whatever your doctors tell you to do. And, yeah. but, but there's, there's no data behind that. That is, that is interesting. Cause I, I have noticed that like, there's some very different, um, protocols with, with like just between different agencies regarding like head positioning. So that's, huh. It's yeah. and it makes me happy that it doesn't matter at all. It's essentially <laughs> like whatever flavor your doctor wants, like yeah. that's what you do. No, we don't think it anything. matters anyway. But yeah, right, yeah. exactly, right. We have any evidence that it matters. Yeah. So, stool store call bringer has uh, call bringer call bringer. Not, I like not that. Bringer. <laughs> not call bringer. Uh, has a few more things they want to do before they start going code three down the uncleared snowy roads. They want to do a 12 lead and they want to get an IV started and like, and then start moving quickly and you know, bouncing down a snowy road could make 12 lead really difficult to obtain and read. Um, and it could also make getting an IV more complicated. So I, this makes sense. Yeah. The 12 lead shows sinus tack. There's no appreciable ST changes. There's no signs of hyper K present. Um, which by the way, this is like, this is the move to make when you have a patient in a metabolic acidosis like this. Um, anyway, an 18 gauge IV is placed and set to saline at a TKO rate. So that's basically just a drip to make sure that it stays open, but it's not actually enough fluid to go in. Like it's, there's no meaningful amount of fluid going in. All right. So, and all of the team work together to accomplish these tasks quickly. And once they're done, it's time to go. Vitals taken during these interventions are heart rate 134, blood pressure 190 over 100, respirations 34, still that Kuzmal pattern, and yeah. sats are now 98% on room air. <clears throat> Stool storm call bringer, fresh from the expert IV start, looks through the cigar smoke wafting up from the stogie they've been chewing on throughout this entire call. Over to Jesus their partner. Christ. <clears throat> all right, we've done all we can here. The only therapy left? Storm slowly puts on their Viper sunglasses before finishing. Is diesel therapy. Like Vin Diesel, are we back to Fast and the Furious again? <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Diesel therapy. <laughs> no! 
Nos. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, and I just this Nos thing. I, dude, I've only seen like two of them, and then just like clips of different <laughs> movies that they've been on. I, Is there I a never... scene though where like do they yell Nos and then like hit the Nos? Yes. And then... Yeah. No, they yell Nos, and then like the car behind them explodes in true Hollywood fashion. Why would that even happen? I need to watch them. That's just yeah. what it comes down I, to. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I was going Vin for Diesel more like therapy. a CSI. Yeah, yeah, you do. I was going for more of like a CSI Miami thing with like the sunglasses going on. And uh, but, you know, like you you took it back to Fast and Furious. So, yeah, I think we're going to be there for a while. I feel a little misunderstood. Like you don't appreciate the the, the writing I've done. But, I don't. You know, all right. Yeah. Unlucky hops up front and stool show call bringer stays in the back. And we're now at a decision point because there are two hospitals this crew could take the patient to. Mm. An estimated 25 minutes in one direction is Sacred Heart Community Limited ICU Hospital. And as you might have guessed by their totally not made up name, this hospital is pretty limited in what it can manage. They don't do cardiac or neuro services. Uh, patients needing that type of care will be uh, drip and shipped out. The medical ICU there also isn't really meant for like real sick ICU patients either. <laughs> so those patients tend to get shipped out as well. This hospital does, however, have a CT scanner and they can start TPA. So that's 25 minutes in one direction. In the other direction, complete 180, about 45 minutes away in this weather, we hope, is larger tertiary hospital with ICU and Sisters of Level 2 Trauma Care (laughs) Medical Center. Sisters of Level 2 Trauma Care. Yeah, this okay. hospital has a lot of things and names, um, but it's a much <laughs> right. farther drive. But stool store call, stool, stool storm call takers' potential conundrum is actually made simple. Their stroke protocol directs them to take the patient to the larger hospital because the timing difference between the two places is less than 30 minutes. Their patient's stroke assessment mandates that higher level of care. I tend to agree with that. I, I think that's, that that is a good call to take them to the larger hospital. But it is worth thinking about the TPA window. So there are some cases where it might be better to go to a closer hospital that has a CT scanner and can get TPA started. Um, if going to that larger hospital might throw them outside of the treatment window, uh, for TPA, which if you don't know, guys, TPA is, um, to really make it easy, it's the clot buster therapy, right? Yep. So if you've got a, uh, a big old clot in your brain, TPA is administered and it will, uh, it will degrade that clot, uh, to allow more cerebral, uh, perfusion. Um, but yeah. so you may have a hospital that can give that, but can't do anything about the actual clot itself or correct a, uh, a hemorrhage, an intracranial hemorrhage going on. In which case, it would still need to be shipped out uh, to another hospital. Um, so, yeah. anyway, it, it is food for thought. Yeah, and and there is a the this, the FDA window for like starting TPA is about four and a half hours from the onset of symptoms, and that's usually the last seen normal time. So that, that this is a really good thought. Like you don't want to, you, you might not want to take a patient to a f- place to the, you know, like the more appropriate place if it puts them outside the window to start the treatment. So, yeah. Anyway, let's, let's touch on that at the end. Cause that's a really good thought too. Sweet. Um, I'll I try like to have them from time to time. Yeah. 
Um, but there are also more reasons to go to this larger facility. For instance, if it's not a stroke, then this is really clearly a very, very, very sick patient who likely needs a lot of ICU care. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They would 100% likely, agree. Yeah, they would totally get shipped out if they went to the other hospital anyway. So that's uh, all these things sort of go like, yeah, I'm going the farther distance away. So they start moving lights and sirens to the larger hospital. Stoolstorm Callbringer establishes another IV and locks it. And now they have a problem. They want to start treatments for this very sick patient. But as Chris pointed out, they do have potentially conflicting treatments and treatment concerns. Yeah. And here they are. And by the way, they spelled this out very clearly for us in this email. So on one side, they have the high probability of a patient in severe metabolic acidosis. They have a patient with warm, dry skin and dry mucous membranes, acetone breath, breathing at a super deep and rapid rate with an end title of eight. Uh, the patient's unresponsive and they have a blood sugar of 507. That sounds exactly like DKA or HACFS, uh, but this patient doesn't have any history of this condition previously, which is strange. Hmm, yeah. The patient, the patient has also been ill for the past few days with a sinus infection. They now have ronchi in their lungs and the bases bilaterally. The patient's altered. They're tachycardic. They have warm, possibly febrile skin. They have an elevated blood sugar, which can happen in sepsis, though 507 seems higher than I'd expect in a non-diabetic septic patient. But again, I, I don't know. It's possible. So, and then, again, with the deep respirations and low end tidal CO2. The weird thing here, though, is that the high blood pressure doesn't fit as well here, nor do the neurological findings of that right. absent movement. There's also the possibility of the stroke. And there was a there was a significant mental status change over possibly three to four hours, which isn't really well explained by metabolic acidosis. Yeah. The patient also has the appearance of hemiparesis on the right side. She doesn't respond or follow commands. So this seems like a very likely large vessel occlusion. Yeah. Or Chris, like you said, it could be all of these conditions. Right. But, here, but therein lies the problem. Two of those three possible conditions necessitate heavy fluid resuscitation starting like now but in the other condition heavy fluid resuscitation on a hypertensive patient uh could be pot like potentially detrimental to the patient's condition with the stroke agreed all right chris storm what do you think about this i you it sounded like you were pretty sold on uh, online medical control are you sure you don't want to just like I don't know, dump a bunch of fluid into this person or just withhold <laughs> it and see what happens. Um, yeah, oof. it's yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it, it kind of comes down to this is this is kind of one of those where I feel comfortable saying, um, I just don't have enough in front of me to have all the answers on this patient. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, yeah. and I, I, I would be totally comfortable with, with an, an OLMC contact. And one of the big reasons I'm comfortable with that is this. We have a 45 minute drive, correct? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. You got yeah. a 45 minute drive. 
Well, 40 minutes now, because five minutes have been spent thinking about this and starting another IV. Yeah, we're good. So you're, call 40, yeah, you're 40 minutes away. <laughs> call, call OMC. And, and just, you know, I'm always a big advocate of, you know, like, be careful how you present it. Uh, but, you know, mm, like, mm-hmm. uh, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I would call OMC and be like, hey, uh, we've got a patient who's altered. We've got three possibilities here. Uh, the big one I'm thinking is stroke. Here's why. Blood pressure, the whole, the, the, the the scale and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But I do have some additional concerns, Doc, is that we have a CBG of this and we have a recent infection that where they just started antibiotics and we have an end title of this. Um, I'm concerned that fluids may be indicated for that high of a CBG, um, but may not be preferable in a stroke. What would you like me to do with this patient? Yeah. And go from there. I, I would still go the, the OLMC route on this, on this patient. Uh- Okay. All right. All right. So Stoolstorm Callbringer decides that the best person to call in this case is online medical control. Uh, by the way, online medical control for this company is a, is at that specific large hospital that's far outside their area, which runs their operation. Hmm. And all the doctors who work that line have been certified to work through their facility as physicians on online medical control. Okay. So they have access, for instance, to the EMS protocols and are allegedly pretty familiar with EMS operations. So Stoolstorm talks to Dr. Hits the Fan over the phone <laughs> and advises the doctor of like, hey, this is the patient. This is the history. This is the assessment I did and asks them what to do about fluid given the competing concerns. Doctor yeah. hit the f- Dr. Hits the Fan doesn't want to talk fluid, though. They almost panically advise Stoolstorm Callbringer to RSI the patient immediately, given their mental status. The doctors of online medical control do know this service has a small transport ventilator in each unit. So this is a potential thing like the partner could conceivably pull over and help RSI the patient. And then they could continue on together with the patient on the transport ventilator. Um. This recommendation throws Stoolstorm Callbringer for a bit of a loop because they don't at all want to do this option. Yeah, I I can understand mm, the hesitation. Okay. Uh, They are worried that this patient is breathing this fast and deep to compensate for the severe metabolic acidosis the patient is likely in. And they are worried that they will not be able to to adequately match the patient's rate with their equipment, even the ventilator. And there's some specific reasoning that I will go into after this call regarding the ventilator. But those were expressed to Dr. Hits the Fan in very, like, in clinical concerns. And Dr. Hits the Fan sort of semi-relents. So what they said is then they're going like, okay, um... Okay, you're not going to intubate, but if the patient's mental status gets any worse, you intubate her right away. And then, uh, you know, okay. shitstorm cover is like, so uh, fluid, now that we, okay, yep, got it, and uh, fluid, and they go, uh, just give her 500 milliliter saline bolus. So hmm. Stoolstorm Callbringer, thrown off by the conversation with the doctor, hangs up and goes about starting the fluid. 
Okay. Stool, Stoolstorm then gets on the radio early to notify the receiving hospital requesting a stab room. Uh, by the way, because it's sent as a stab room, and I was like, that's some fucking dark shit. Uh, <laughs> We're giving up on this patient. <laughs> Send to the stab room. But I uh, I looked it up. It's it's stab. Like, it's it's short for stabilization room, and it's pronounced stab. So, uh, there I got it is. You. The stab Boy. room. Um, yeah. <laughs> mm. All right. So, then, for the transport, they just monitored the patient, who did no better or no worse for most of the transport. The vitals were checked throughout the rest of the trip. Systolic blood pressures remained in the 170 to 190s. Diastolics were 90s to 110. The patient's heart rate stayed in that 130s to 140s rate. End tidal via their um, nasal cannula was 8 to 12 uh, millimeters of mercury. And the SPO2 stayed between 96 and 98% on room air with a good Great. pleth. So things seem stable. That is until they arrive at the receiving hospital. Perfect. That's the best time for this to happen. Hot potato, hot potato. When the the doctor's like, you should intubate, and you're like, no, I shouldn't. Uh, They're pretty stable. And then you're going to drop this off. Yep. Perfect. Awesome. (laughs) So as they arrive, they notice that the patient's torso is now taking on a modeled appearance. That's a bad appearance for a torso. That's terrible appearance. Yeah. The patient is quickly taken into the ED, but it's learned that the hospital decided that instead of placing the patient in the larger ED room meant for really sick patients, this patient would likely do just fine in a small, like, Harry Potter-esque closet <laughs> room in the far back of the ED away from all the carts. So, choice. Uh, this is the decision that the hospital probably likely regrets. I don't know. I didn't get to talk to anyone from there. Um, but as report is given and eyes are laid on the patient by hospital staff, suddenly like carts are being called for. People are trying to like move around each other in the like tiny super cramped space. Storm, <laughs> stool storm call bringer just kind of goes like, or, you know, you could just Go to the bigger room, but uh, yeah, all right, it's fine. They slip out of the ED room, noting uh, that the patient is now hypotensive. Well, that's not the way you want the receiving monitor. (laughs) That's bad. Yep, they give report. They uh, talk to the doctor and they ask if they can call and get follow up, given just this incredibly complex presentation. And the doctor, mm. surprisingly for this facility, and I say surprising for this facility because this facility essentially does the like, nope, nope. Oh, no, go ahead. and Chris, go ahead and ask me if you can get follow up. Go ahead. Hey, can I get follow up? No, no, you no, can't. Just, yeah, that's nice. what this place does. Um, yeah. There are really quick, just to clarify that. It's not that they're assholes or that they're jerks. I mean, they kind of are. But, I think um, they are. It's, no, I'm going to say it. <laughs> well, a lot of what it comes down to is that there are some parent, some hospitals that are overly paranoid about sharing information. They don't understand HIPAA and they believe they don't realize that you you can give us follow up and be HIPAA compliant just fine. Um, and there are hospitals that don't realize that. So basically they just don't, their overall uh, policy is just don't, don't tell yeah. anybody anything. And, and that way we will be safe. So we don't have to try and figure out when we can and we can't, it's just always going to be can't. And then we're safe. Yep. So yeah, it's, I, it's usually not that they just hate us. They just, yeah, that's just what that yeah. is. Yeah. Or they hate so, you personally, or, or they personally you hate you that they are not giving information yep. to. That's you know what? That's, that is probably it. That's <laughs> n- never mind. Forget what I said. It's all malice. 
It's actually better to assume malice in almost any situation than it is to oh, assume absolutely. the best in people. Yeah, that's no, good. Always assume malice where simple incompetence can better explain. Yes. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, but the doctor's totally on board with this. Uh, and so they're like, yeah, call me. Um, but hey, <laughs> then it doesn't really you. work out because and they call the first crazy. time and they are told to call back. And then when they call back later, this is the following information they're able to get. All right. Severe acidosis present. Significant pneumonia found. The patient had a white blood cell count of 33,000. And that's it. That's all the no information. No CT? You don't get a CT? No, you don't get anything. By the way, this case did go to the agency's medical director for review, and we'll touch on that in a moment. Man. Um, but even the medical director wasn't able to get information on this patient to review the call. So, boom. That all is right. the call. So, DKA, totally possible, but the acidosis could also be from sepsis. Um the patient's white blood cell count is high for anyone that doesn't know basically a, a, a white cell blood count about depending on who you ask or what source you read it's usually either 10,000 or 11,000 uh, they're at 33,000 so an infection's likely but we don't have a CT so we don't know if it's a stroke <laughs> oh, damn it <laughs> I know I know uh, so yeah that's the call God you know what here's the thing like yes we don't get to know the answer but that's very ems like you don't you most of the time in life yeah you will not get the answer that you actually want i don't know if i have told this story on this show before and this is a brief tangent i am sorry listeners but but i think most of you will actually get a kick out of this uh not a kick you most of you will want to hear this i once found out i got a code save when the patient's child called and accused me of losing their cell phone and I immediately started being like, oh, gosh, I am. Yeah, no, well, I'll see if I can't find that. I was a supervisor, by the way. And I also had run this call, this code. And I was like, yeah, no, I, I'm. And by the way, I'm sorry about your mother and all this stuff. And the child's like, yeah, well, when you find the phone, if you could get it back to her, she's at she gave it and they gave an address to a care facility. I'm like, hey, wait, your mom's alive. Yeah. Yeah, they're alive. No, she needs her cell phone. I'm like. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you're fucking welcome. Um, but, but yeah, I did not say that, but yeah, it was a, it was a code where, uh, we got pulses back before we got to the emergency room, but I was like, man, I'm like, we got pulses back, but, but yeah. she, she's not leaving this, this ER room. And then we left and I went home. Uh, that was my last call. And then I just, uh, I, I assumed I was right and it turned out I was wrong. So anyway, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but that's, I mean, that's most of the time what ends up happening is we don't, we don't actually get to get the follow up that we want. But there are some really, really cool features of this call. And that's why I really wanted to go through it. Uh, yeah. So in this call, we had a 14 year medic known in their service for being a dark, cloudy shit. I'm sorry, stool magnet. God. And, okay. At this point, you've ended up probably swearing more around this <laughs> to compensate for the lack to of compensate. yeah <laughs> yeah I'm exactly um yeah i no, feel like so. that was on purpose <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly motherfucker All right, <laughs> so uh this magnet gets a call for a very sick elderly female patient altered mental status several different pathologies at play they contact online medical control because two of those contenders uh, would require heavy fluid resuscitation and the other one 
shouldn't. Um, yeah. And online medical control tells them like, hey, forget all that. You need to intubate this patient. But stool storm call taker or call bringer, uh, they successfully argue against this intervention and instead just give the 500 mils of saline that they were instructed to do. The patient does get a lot sicker when they get to the ED, and we don't know much beyond that, except that they were severely septic and acidotic. So let's go into this. Chris, thoughts, first thoughts, like good, bad opportunities, questions. Uh, my goodness. So, I'm going to tell you this. I actually think the performance uh, of the responders uh, in this call, I don't have a lot that I would change based on what they did. They did great. This is one of those calls, though, that is just very... I mean, I love it because I, I really want our listeners that are not in EMS to really hear and feel this call because this is our life. Uh, we yeah. are given enough instruments uh, to look into shallow waters without really getting too deep to try and figure out what's wrong. And in this case, we didn't have the instruments to find everything. What they need they to really know what's going on with, on with this patient you need lab work. You need a CT scan. Uh, we can't yeah. do that in the field. Period. The end. Uh, so we just kind of, what we can do, we can do a CBG. That's, that's the lab work, quote unquote, we do in the field. That's it right there. Uh, yeah. and if, if you really want to get creative, I guess you consider entitled CO2 and then try and extrapolate levels off of that, but you shouldn't <laughs> like that. That's yeah. We, we don't do. Uh, okay. We don't do lab work. I'm just going to leave it at that. So we don't have it. And so, yeah, this is one of those things where, I don't know. There were a ton of missed opportunities. I will say one of the things I really, really liked, I'm going to say it again, was the first responders on scene coming back and saying, hey, uh, look, we think it might be a stroke because when we did, uh, you know, when we did some pokes and checked a CBG, we noticed the patient didn't move with the right arm. And I love that kind of stuff. I love that right there because it is it's what we talked about in past episodes it's like hey maybe maybe i can't do the complete stroke scale i want to do because i can't get her to follow commands or there aren't other obvious signs but in this particular case they found another way to look for neuro deficits and i love that now ultimately the paramedic was able to complete the stroke scale that they used that's fine that's great but i do want to point out i just i love that kind of level of attention to detail and i thought that was great um I appreciate that he called OLMC. I absolutely appreciate that. I appreciate that this paramedic was able to state their case as to why they didn't want to innovate. And I don't know if this is one of your lesson plans for today, Spencer, but uh, I wouldn't have wanted to innovate this patient either. Um, uh, we will talk about that. Absolutely. Okay. And it's not that I'm not really worried about like missing the airway on this patient or anything like that. I'm actually kind of worried about some more metabolic stuff. Um, yeah. But because your body loves to use those windbags in your chest to uh, to regulate lots of stuff. And so anyway, mm -hmm. we'll, I'm hoping we'll get yeah. into that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I. I I think that I think they actually did a great job. The one thing I would say, the missed opportunity here was not calling out sick. That's the missed opportunity. <laughs> that's that's, that's the only really thing yeah. I would change. You could have had a snow day, mm -hmm. <laughs> stool storm, call bringer. Could have just been frolicking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And your partner, unlucky, yeah. could probably. Yeah, you would have turned him into lucky. <laughs> it's like, hey, you don't have a partner today. 
So uh, we're just, I don't know, just hang yeah. out and clean the station. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's be completely different. Uh, we got to do that EMS 2020 episode. All right. So we're going to start call in the system where we have uh, two people at a station. One of them calls out sick. Uh, the other person plays games on their cell phone and does some chart review and then calls the supervisor and says, do you really need me here today? They say, you know what? Just like go home, stay on the clock. Uh, if we need you, you'll have to come back. Um, but you know, otherwise like, yeah. And you're describing, you're describing my last night is what you're describing. And it was, it was fucking amazing. (laughs) I, yeah. Um, no, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I really love that the, the, like, by the way, this is my favorite kind of call to run. Like this is, this is the thing where I get really excited because I'm like, (laughs) there are so many possibilities. There's so much stuff that we need to kind of like uncover and figure out. And like, we need to do interventions. And so like, this is one of those where I'm coming in and I'm just like, it's Christmas, baby. It's snowing outside. It's Christmas. Like, yeah, Father Christmas has brought me a gift. This really sick old lady. Like, woo. Boy, that's dark. Um, yeah, no, I really love the assessment and the history gathering that took place. I think there's probably like a couple more history items that I would have wanted to gather. You know, like, hey, how much like has the patient been drinking a lot of water or fluid over the past week? Were there any change? Like, has she been going to the bathroom a lot more? Any changes in like you know, how hungry she is, et cetera. Like maybe establish if the patient like had any, like voiced any complaints, like, you know, like, ah, my chest doesn't feel great or something along those lines, just to make sure we're not really missing any other possible um, things. But I mean, but really functionally, like those wouldn't have changed any part of this call. Like even if they'd asked, they still would have ended up at the same crossroads regarding like fluid administration. So I, you know, but, that's just me for like extra points, I guess. I don't know. Um, or it's just useless information gathering that's wasting time. I don't know. <laughs> uh, speaking of use of time, like I love the teamwork. I love the recognition that this patient was sick and everything was very sort of like deliberate. Um, yeah. And, and I really love like this is phenomenal critical care thinking like on a street level. Like this is I they weighed they weighed each path they considered like, Hey, what I know of this pathology and this process, like what seems normal, what seems odd just because something's odd and doesn't really fit. Doesn't mean that it's like you discount it, but you know, like you're like, Hmm, a lot, none of these fit great. And it could be all three. Yeah. So I agree. Great use of online medical control and good pushback and like we'll talk about that more in a moment in fact fuck it let's just talk about it now online medical control so this was and i think you identified this correctly this is like the perfect utilization of this tool this medic recognized that they had you know those potentially conflicting treatments and made the right call by talking to an expert and contacting their you know that resource um if you have never called online medical control before it can seem like a really daunting task it's just like it is super intimidating to be like the first time you get on the phone and like the radio and you're like taught you want you need to talk to the physician uh especially if you've never done it before because like nobody wants to feel like an idiot and you're here like do do I talk first? Do, do you talk first? Like, 
<laughs> how much do I pay for this? Like, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> if your um, whole MC line is a one nine hundred number, which I don't think everyone's gonna get that. But I, I was just no, like, dude, that's that's like a way way old. It's when you and I were kids. Uh, used to, so one nine hundred numbers. Um, basically, if it was a one nine hundred, that means like you got billed for it through your phone company if you called it, and it was usually it was reserved for two things. Uh, one, sex phone lines. You'd call and basically someone would swear their name was Starla and, and basically like they'd ask like your, anyway, yeah, sex hotlines. <laughs> what would they ask? Chris, they, <laughs> tell me about your many conversations with Starla. <laughs> but it was like, it was adult sex lines is what it was. You would yeah. call and it just basically they would talk dirty to you. That's what it was. <laughs> what and was the other one? The other one would be the the uh, the Nintendo Power Helpline. That was the only other thing on there. It was all <laughs> sex lines in the Nintendo Power Helpline. So if you were playing a video game and you couldn't get past the spot, you could call a 1-900 number. They would bill you, but they would essentially, you'd be like, hey, I'm trying to get the second capsule in Mega Man X2 uh, and I can't get there. And they'd be like, all right, this is how you do it. And they would tell you. Uh, you'd, you'd give them like a game and then they would hook you up with like some expert. Um, wow. Yeah. Jesus, I didn't know that was a thing. So I knew it was a thing and it stuck in my mind because there was one time when I had called them and my parents had picked up the phone to call somebody. And of course we had a landline. So they just heard what was coming over the phone. And it was a part where it was like, you are about to be billed for calling this one 900 number. And that is all they heard. And I all hear is <laughs> Chris get off the phone and come downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> and they're questioning me about like, what are you calling this thing? And I'm like, Hey, it's, it, it's for Nintendo stuff. And they just both started laughing. <laughs> so that is a true story uh, and we can move on with this uh with this podcast right. we do now yeah yeah <laughs> i love it though all right so if you've never called before here's what i tend to do when i call uh first know what you want to ask and maybe like preempt the conversation by letting the doctor know why you're calling so it, my example would be like Hi, Dr. Hits the Fan. I'm Spencer, <laughs> paramedic, and I'm calling because I have a question about fluid administration for the patient I'm with. Let me give you the details. I have a 64-year-old female with an altered mental status. Here's the background, and you go through that history of present illness. Here's what my assessment found, and you go over those key items. And then you say, like, and so here's my concern. Should I give this patient fluid, given the concern for stroke and hypertension? Right. You know, and this sounds sort of essentially like the conversation that the paramedic in this call had with the doctor. Now, in this situation, the doctor asked for an intervention to be performed that honestly, super appropriate in a hospital setting with like staff and RT, real ventilators, labs, CTs, like all that great stuff. But we don't work in a hospital setting. And just because something is totally called for in one setting doesn't mean it exactly applies in another. So to the doctor, this might seem like a no brainer to them because that's the setting that they're accustomed to working in. But in this situation, given the details that I know about this patient and the equipment, 
the pushback to the doctor is actually a really great move. And yeah. I applaud Stuhl for being able to like articulate the concerns for the patient in this situation. And, and by the way, that like, this is exactly how this had to happen. You speak with clinical concerns because, and like to all the newer medics, remember this, like online medical control doctors are absolutely an expert resource, but they may not appreciate the situation or the limitations that you are facing when you are out in the field and calling them. Absolutely. You absolutely, like if you do, if they do tell you to do something that you have concerns about, you, you should absolutely bring up those concerns. Um, so that you don't have to like comply with a potentially like not great order or, you know, just to make sure that you understand it, that they understand what you are concerned about. So, um, that is online medical control. Chris, you did a really good breakdown of like how you would approach it up there uh, mm. early on. Do you have any more thoughts on this? No, I think you actually brought up a lot of good points there. And that that's that's kind of the general rule I follow. You really want to try and put them in your headspace, uh, but quickly and easily. Uh, earlier, you had said, you know, like, hey, like, here's the background and give a quick HPI, uh, which is history of present illness, for those that aren't familiar with that term. Um, just to elaborate on that, don't give them the full story you got to establish that HPI. Give them the conclusions you came to. And then the supporting evidence for that. Um, you don't have to walk them down the same path that you walked down to get to your conclusion. Because remember, you had 15 minutes to do it. This is a five minute phone call. So that, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, like keep, keep that in mind. Don't put them to sleep. Uh, and also, like, and don't confuse people either. So, yeah, I would say, yeah, the quick HPI uh, is key. And I really love the way that Spencer bro- you know, broke it down. Hey, I've got an altered mental status. Uh Here's yeah background. Here's what I found in my assessment. You know the CBG, uh, but the stroke scale is also positive. Uh, but also po- sepsis and and ATCO two. Uh, here's my concern. I want to give fluid. You know. Yeah. But yeah, but, I, but high but high blood pressure and stroke, and then then let them go from there. So good. No, absolutely. Good breakdown. You definitely want to avoid, you know, Chris, you bring up a really good point. You definitely want to avoid sort of, you know, what they call like floating the balloon. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's the expression I'm familiar with, where essentially you you call and you just sort of you start saying things and like just telling them about the patient. And the like the reason I say, you know, start with like framing why you're calling like, hey, I'm calling right. because I have a Clint like I have a treatment question regarding fluid. And so then right. they know like. Okay, I need to be listening for details that would make me consider this. And they will listen to your assessment and stuff like that. If you just call and you're like, hey, so I've got this lady and she's altered. And here's the story. Like, they don't, then they're kind of like, why are, like, they're giving me a lot of information. What if this is important to what they're going to ask? Yeah. You know, and like, so it's, that can be, like, that's why I say, like, always frame with like know why you're calling and run my call for that. me just tell me what my hands tell me where my yeah. hands need to be um, yeah so hey the thing that i would actually like to talk about uh, next if you're good with that um yeah i kind of want to elaborate on why like like exactly why i would not rsi this patient if that's cool with you no absolutely perfect because that's actually what i thought we should cover next so like hit it man Boom. tell me uh 
All right. So let's kind of, well, so first I want to talk about uh, why rapid sequence intubation uh, or rapid sequence induction uh, is super dangerous for this patient or DSI, whatever you're going to use. And I'm not, I'm not going to do the DSI versus RSI rant. (laughs) Why intubating, paralyzing and intubating this patient is not great. There you go. So uh, a lot of the standard rule is, hey, if you have a glass calcoma scale of less than eight, uh, intubate. Um, But this patient's breathing rate is also just deranged. Um, we're told that normal is like what 12 to 20 breaths a minute. I can see a lot of medics wanting to induce this patient. Um, boy, it sounds like we're doing OB shit. Um, wanting to, uh, to intubate this patient and, you know, give paralyzing and sedating them. Uh, and then trying to work to slow that rate down to try and move that ETCO2 mm-hmm. that was like eight to 12 into a normal range. If you yeah. do that, you could absolutely kill this patient. I feel that way. And, and my words are coming strong, but it, it, it could happen. And here's why. Um, when you have someone who is in profound metabolic acidosis, which this patient could be because they had uh, that high, that high sugar. So it could be DKA, which could be metabolic acidosis. Uh, the other option that we have for this patient was sepsis, which guess what? Also causes acidosis. Uh, and then I want to say like aspirin overdoses also lead to, as- uh, to acidosis yeah, as well. That, that yeah, that causes a profound acidosis. Yep. So there's, so there's that. Uh, the patient's body is going to try to work its ass off to try and breathe off as much CO2 as it possibly can to try and overcome that metabolic acidosis. So CO2 is is a weak acid. And so getting rid of much of it as possible adds a little respiratory alkalosis to the other side of the scale in hopes that it can try and balance out that acidosis. But think of metabolic acidosis as like a one pound weight. And the respiratory alkalosis is like a half pound weight. So point is, it's not equal. It's not going to completely accommodate, or I guess I would say, God, what's the word I'm working for? Oppose that, um, that acidosis and the acidosis gets worse. And as the acidosis gets worse, that breathing just can't keep up. So if they're breathing this fast, they likely need to be breathing that fast. And I think it's appropriate to be super worried about interfering with that. Not only, uh, does RSI or DSI involve apnea, there's that period of apnea. Uh, but if we're not able to match that ventilatory rate and tidal volumes or either not able or we just don't recognize that we need to, the yeah. patient had prior to this intubation, uh, yeah, it could be super easy to kill them. You can make them really acidotic. So I guess like one option for this patient would be they could try and match that rate with like a vent and, or their BVM and then use the ETCO2 uh, as a guide. Um, but if I'm going by my knowledge off a lot of transport and ventilators, I don't know if I'd be comfortable doing that. Um, mm, yeah. And I'll, is that info I'll you touch, have? I'll, oh yeah. I'm going to, okay. I'm going to touch on this gotcha. in a good second here. Cause this would not have been a good option at all, but yeah, no, your, your point is, well, like they, they potentially could have done the BVM with the end title. Had they like really, you know, had the doctor been like, no, you intubate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this one other point I'd like to make about acidosis. Um, we don't appreciate it in, in 911 as much as we do when we get into flight, just because in flight, we do deal with a lot more, um, acidotic and sepsis patients on like interfacility transports where we're, uh, you know, giving 
giving drips and we have lab work from these from these facilities and people have been septic longer um but acetosis is absolutely fucking lethal and and we don't get the appreciation for that that we do in uh or in item in item yeah. one we just don't get the appreciation for that and just remember your blood ph range 7.35 to 7.45 and your yeah. body just gets all kinds of bitchy when it's even a little <laughs> bit outside of that all right yeah. you've got yeah. yeah you've got one tenth of a power of the power of hydrogen and that's yeah, yeah i just it's yeah and then then things go fucking askew so anyway <laughs> yeah i you know let, let, let's revisit that scenario where like they okay like all right let's say they intubate and they try and match with like the ventilator or the bvm and use that end tidal co2 but yeah. like if that ventilator isn't a, an option then like really this is still a bad treatment plan because like if the ventilator can't work then either like stool storm is going to be like bvming this patient and they have to like really really super focus in and like narrow it and they can do like no other patient care unless they like wait for riders or you know like more resources to come to ride in yeah um, that's a good point yeah or like or the ventilator would work and then they could presumably continue on with the patient alone given that that's not an option like all this really does is just delay care and apparently this time mattered because like let's say they delay care for another 10 minutes now that patient's chest and hypotension 10 minutes earlier right. <laughs> it's like now that's happening while you're out in the snowy woods by yourself um, <laughs> <laughs> have fun and not in a tiny closet room but with all the hospital people there so yeah i yeah um you know, here's a question for you, Chris. Is there some variable that could change for this call to make intubation and like appropriate intervention despite the risks? Do you think? I, not a lot. I'll, I'll tell you that much. The main thing that would change my mind would be that aspiration scenario, right? If we started to have to worry about controlling the airway and protecting the airway itself. Because what I can tell you is that while accidentally ruining this person's acid-based balance by doing this is bad um having an airway clogged full of vomit is is probably the one thing that's worse (laughs) so yeah yeah, that's probably even worse uh so yeah i i would say that uh, if if aspiration risk was increased i would definitely be uh innovating this patient Um, but that's the only factor off the top of my head that comes to mind yeah, likewise. I think like, you know, like uh, maybe, all right, maybe if they're, you know, like their stroke worsened allegedly, you know, their, their alleged stroke <laughs> mm-hmm. hasn't been convicted yet. It's just right. still going to trial. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> if, if there had been like more neurogenic breathing, like with like the patterns of, you know, like apnea or something like that, then like, absolutely. Um, sure. And then aspiration as well. And I'm glad this medic was like looking out for like, Hey, are there signs that this patient could potentially vomit or has vomited? Mm. And they noted like none of that there. And, you know, there wasn't secretions weren't a problem for the patient to manage. So, yeah, I think there, yeah, there really isn't any of the reasons that I would look for or that you would look for here to intubate. So, yeah. Mm. Um, So let's talk about, let's talk about that ventilator because that was right. So, which I imagine most transport ventilators are essentially just like the old like smoke bellows that they used to use in chimneys. I don't know if you, I, 
That's this, pretty much what it is. This is sort of similar to that. All right. So okay. why was this medic's ventilator not great for this call? Whew. All right. This is probably way too deep a topic. But, uh, you know, here we go. Let's uh, I'll do my best to cover this in simple you know, if terms. If you guys have hung out this long for this, like you're in. You're, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're doing this whole thing. You got it. All right. Yeah. I know it's been rough at times. I know this may not be the most exciting point, but you know what? Let's see it through. I can guarantee you Spencer's awkward as fuck ending is going to be amazing. And I can oh, also guarantee you he hasn't thought of it yet. And now the pressure's <laughs> on. So those are two oh, things. No. I have to read this and think at the same time. I don't oh, know. Oh, there you go. All Good right. luck, buddy. All right. So, ventilators. They provide positive pressure ventilations to patients, much like your hand and that BVM would. Except, unlike your hand, ventilators can provide set volumes and or pressures of delivered air to the patient's lungs. Some of the nicer ones have a variety of modes and features which could be beneficial to your patient. Your hand, in comparison, totally sucks at all of this. Rates, pressures, volumes, it's all over the place with that BVM, and chances are we're likely inadvertently just damaging the patient's lung with our uncareful BVMing and, you know, big fucking grips. So, yeah, woo! Ventilators typically offer safer and more precise ventilations and are honestly usually the way to go for ventilating almost all intubated patients. Absolutely. So why wouldn't why wouldn't the patient in this call benefit benefit from their ventilator? Because it's a Be- smoke bellows that's attached to a speaking spell. That's yeah, why. Basically, yeah, no, it's, yeah. this ventilator is super old. It's outdated. And because of that, it has a few potentially fatal flaws. On the good side of this ventilator, it all it needs is a uh, O2 source to operate. There's no batteries. It, it doesn't need any of like it doesn't need to be plugged into a volt outlet. It it just needs an O2 line with about 50 psi to power the thing. Now I will say that's a little bit of a confusing uh, thing there because um, psi is a measurement of pressure, but most of our regulators measure in what volume. Mm-hmm. So liters per minute does not translate evenly to PSI. The The pressure depends on uh, just a number of factors. You can have a regulator that delivers 15 liters per minute at a lower pressure just because the hole that goes into the tubing is is larger versus you could have one that has to push out more because it's smaller. So it'll be higher pressure with the same volume. So just bear in mind, that's not the same as 50 liters per minute. That's a pressure Yes, yes, anyway. that is pounds per square inch. Yep. Uh, is there a kilograms per square inch? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure right. I'm sure we'll we'll hear about it soon. All right. So th- this ventilator operates using volume modes only, meaning that this thing will deliver a set volume of air to the patient with every breath it delivers. In fact, on this thing, there's a little turn dial that lets you deliver anywhere between like 200 mils to 1500 milliliters of air to a patient. So that's a liter and a half of air. And by the way, it, most people, they're like fi- 500 mils is sort of the rough <laughs> estimate of like what, how much volume should be delivered to an adult patient. Um, 
There's another turn dial, which allows you to set a minute rate. And essentially, that's just how many breaths will be delivered to the patient per minute by the ventilator. Um, on this ventilator, there are nice little hieroglyphics hieroglyphics for an adult and it's you know it sets it to 12 for a child it recommends 15 breaths per minute and for an infant it recommends 20 and this thing does can go beyond it can go up to 40 breaths per minute okay but here's the huge flaw with this ventilator it has only one mode when on that is cmv or continuous mandatory ventilation Oh, this also has an alternate name, control mode. So you have to to understand what I'm talking about. You have to kind of know that there's a couple different modes with ventilators. So here are those different modes of breathing assistance provided by ventilators. There is assist control. This mode will make sure that the patient breathes at least the set minimum in a minute. And it will provide a set volume for every breath that the ventilator gives. So, for instance, like if you set the dial to 10 breaths per minute and you set the volume to delivered to be 500 mils, then the patient will breathe at least 10 times and each breath delivered by the ventilator will be 500 mils. But what happens if the patient breathes more than 10? So basically, yeah. So what happens like if you set the respiratory rate at 10 and then the patient spontaneously takes one of the takes a breath on their own, putting them at greater than 10? What happens? Yeah. Well, the ventilator will sense their breath and provide 500 mils and they will do that every time the patient breathes. So if they're apneic. It means they're not breathing on their own. Then the ventilator will just deliver 10 times. The, the, 500 mils 10 times if you set that rate to 10. Yeah. But if they're breathing 30 times, boy, those 500 milliliter volumes could start adding up. So yeah. that's assist control. Then there's SIMV or synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation. So let's go back and use that 10 breaths per minute and 500 mil tidal volumes again. So that means that in an apneic patient, once again, they will get 10 breaths with 500 mils of air given per breath. But what if they breathe more than 10 per minute, like on their or on their own? Well, then the ventilator would make sure that at least 10 breaths given that minute will also get a tidal volume of 500. And the other breaths the patient take won't. It, they can either be unsupported or sometimes they'll offer in like a little pressure support. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, like it's only going to give you 500 mils breath 10 times in that minute. And the rest of your breaths are either assisted or unsupported. Yeah. And I, I really like SimV because it gives you the minimum that you want and it allows the patient to kind of breathe around that without fighting the ventilator. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now let's go back and contrast those two modes with control mode. This mode essentially locks the patient out of being able to breathe on their own. This mode doesn't sense patient effort. It uses timing only to deliver breaths. So basically what it means is the patient can only breathe when the ventilator allows them to breathe. This means that a patient could be struggling to try and pull air through the circuit. 
which, you know, they could potentially do. There is a relief valve that opens when enough negative pressure is generated. So, you know, the patient could potentially take a breath around the ventilator. Although, you know, uh, I don't know, trying to breathe against that negative pressure sounds yeah. potentially injurious. But it does. But here's the problem with this ventilator in this mode. And this is sort of the fucked up part because of because the patient can do this, because they can essentially like start trying to breathe and re- trigger that release valve. The patient could actually like, br- you know, uh, breathe take that unsupported breath, and then while they're trying to exhale, the ventilator could trigger a timing thing and just try and deliver 500 mils to the patient. Jeez. Which then, yeah. while they're trying to exhale, which then, of course, creates all sorts of problems. You have stacking breaths, you're triggering oh. high pressures, you're increasing the work of breathing for the patient. It, it's a total mess. <clears throat> now, here's the thing I really like about this medic. They are well aware of this limitation. In fact, Good. they've personally experimented with all these settings to confirm that this is, in fact, what happens. So, because, like, so, let me tell like, you. Like, wait, personally, experience, like, they put it on themselves and gave it a go? Uh, yeah, they attached it with, you know, masks and BVMs and, and nice. the whole thing, trying to, That's getting yeah, at it. trying to play with it. Yeah, no, they, uh, they, they were very curious as to how this all played out, which maybe this is why Unlucky's called Unlucky. He showed yeah. up on equipment <laughs> test day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. Yeah. Two of them right now. Yeah. <laughs> Control mode only. Hey, what's his nickname? Uh, I got it. No sedation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, because here's the thing. This honestly, like you don't want to find this. You don't want to find out this limitation for this equipment out in the middle of a call. So no, you don't. This this is the and this is the really like this is really the reason I bring up this lesson point is, you know, regardless of what you're using for your equipment, you know, whether you have a ventilator or you have a pump or a CBG kit, because we'll talk about that in a second. Like you have to know how it operates and its limitations so that you can make the best clinical decisions. So, um, yeah, let's talk about that CBG error because that was something that kind of tripped up the first responders, although it did have the, you know, happy, you know, uh, circumstance of making them like check different fingers and notice a lack of response on one particular side. So yeah, which ah, is good serendipitous perhaps, but uh, (laughs) yeah, the CBG error. So some glucometers will read high or announce like ketones on the display when they encounter a set glucose level that is, it it considers elevated. Um, But some monitors will actually give an error message like an E1 error or something along those lines. Huh. And from talking with stool, that's the likely scenario here. Um, and had the fire responders known this about their equipment, they would have been able to recognize like, Oh, this error that we're getting is because this isn't an error. This is actually just like, this is how this machine tells us that the CBG is high. Um, you know, I'm, I don't know that personally firsthand that that's the situation here but that's sort of the suspicion that was or that was what was told to me and so it it could be applicable here and if so like yeah then you know that that's one of those things where hey it's really good to know so that you don't waste time poking the patient's finger a bunch of times to give it to try and get information that the machine has already given you so um and then 
let's, I, I think the last thing I'd really want to talk about in this not at all ultra long episode yeah, is pretty quick the, one. Is the thing that you brought up earlier, hospital destinations and stroke. Earlier, I had mentioned like, hey, like, yeah, do you pass the primary uh, stroke center up? Uh, that Basically, it's a place that can do a CT, do some imaging on the head, and maybe would have told us it would have had a better episode. Um, <laughs> and start TPA. <laughs> so in that case, yes. Uh, anyway, and then start TPA, which is clot busting therapy, if you have that suspected large vein occlusion. Um, but... Uh, or do you go to the larger hospital that can actually do something about the clot itself uh, and has just basically a lot of other resources to care for this patient, but doing so may put them out of the window to actually start that TPA. To me, this is going to be EMS and hospital system dependent. Uh, I There are a lot of variables. I know this is an area that's being researched heavily. Um, one of the controversies is... Oftentimes, smaller hospitals or, well, not smaller hospitals in general, but these smaller hospitals aren't able to turn the patients around. Like you get them in there, they get the CT done, they get the TPA started, and the turnaround time uh, isn't great. And so it's sometimes better to spend the extra 30 minutes driving them to a hospital where there is no turnaround or transfer time and they get started there than it is to get them that uh, TPA started, uh, you know, 30 minutes yeah. earlier. So, and you also got to understand, it's not like you show up and they're like, I have the back of TPA and they slam it on the patient immediately. There's a little bit of processing to be done. So Absolutely. you got to kind of take that out. But anyway, uh, so yeah, but still it's going to be dependent uh, on your, on your system itself. There's just a ton of variables. Um, and there's also some data that's kind of starting to suggest that TPA administration uh, alone doesn't really help in large vessel occlusion strokes. And so taking the patient to a place to get CT and start TPA and then having those patients wait to get transferred uh, could be bad and, and actually not help at all. And there are some who argue that it does help and that the patient needs a CT to rule out bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the thing here is this, just follow your agency and medical director's guidelines. Hopefully the system you are working in has guidelines about LVO strokes. Uh, and this is the perfect question to ask your medical director. And in this case, the agency's medical director didn't even bat an eye about this decision. In fact, their review of this call essentially was like, yeah, man, hmm, 500 of fluid. That's probably the most I would have given. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, I was surprised. I thought the patient probably could get more. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not a medical doctor. So. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so to kind of summarize learning points, the one thing I kind of want to drive home is I think this crew did. Uh, I, I don't know that I would have changed a whole lot that the crew did. Spencer made some other uh, kind of history gathering points earlier, which I think are absolutely valid. But ultimately, in terms of the actions the crew took, this is fine. I, 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 th I think they should walk away from this call being like, yeah, we did pretty well. Um, so, or we did good actually on this call. Yeah. That's I, we, I, you I know what? Totally Fuck fine. that. We did great on this We did call. great enough. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I'm <laughs> great enough earlier. Uh, so, so yeah, basically, guys, uh, quick summary here. So when you're contacting OLMC, remember this. Uh, you call them. You say, hey, I have a question about a specific intervention. Uh, here's the deets. I have this is my patient. This is the chief complaint. Quick background in HPI. Don't linger too long there. Here's what I found in my assessment. And here's my concern with this intervention I'm calling you about. And then let them go from there. Don't sit there and float the balloon and let them try and run your call for you. 
don't do the whole tell me where to put my hands. That's not going to work. Uh, <laughs> airways with acidotic patients. Gosh, be careful. Unless that airway is going to go away through vomit. Um, if someone has that low end title and they're breathing a lot, that very well may be a good indicator to let them keep doing it because this may be an acidotic patient. And when you drop that respiratory drive, you can tip their acidosis really quick. Now, don't confuse that with being like, oh, shit, this patient's respiratory rate is high. I'm not going to intubate them. We're saying specifically in patients with an HPI that is leading you towards acidosis, like high blood sugars. If you go on a respiratory patient that's breathing really fast, you may need to intubate them. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is in patients where acidosis is, is a high likelihood, uh, innovate with caution uh, or don't innovate. Um, and also finally, know your equipment just like this paramedic did. And it was awesome. Uh, this ventilator would have been I think this ventilator is just inappropriate in general, but uh, yeah, you know, the the, uh, the chimney bellows that 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 you're using may not be uh, appropriate for this. Uh, if you have a ventilator, know exactly how it works, and in this case, this medic nailed it by knowing that this this is basically a control only um, ventilator, which would not have been great uh, for this patient or really for a lot of patients uh, to be dead honest. And of course, know your CVG kits. Uh, the CVG it was kind of a big thing on this one. It, it ended up actually being a pretty important clue as what was going on with this patient. Um, so yeah, know if your CVG kit error, what your CVG kit errors uh, mean, because apparently sometimes it could just mean high, not in hello high, but high is in like above 500 high. Uh, and then finally, you know, like we said, the hospital destination and strokes refer to your local protocols. There's not a lot of data that's really supporting um, trying to save time by dashing to the nearest uh, CT scanner. Um, but uh, there are protocols out there that are usually they're typically written in some kind of fashion like, hey, uh, if you had, you know, like basically an, uh, unless unless the tertiary hospitals, you know, more than X number of minutes away, you're going to the tertiary hospital. So, yeah, that's kind of it. That's it. Wow. All right. Now bring us this award-winning awkward as fuck ending that you've been planning this entire time and have completely prepared. All right. <clears throat> Do you need a beat? Stool storm. Stool storm call bringer. <laughs> Stands outside. Uniform covered in blood. He falls to his knees. Arms raised in the sky. Why? God, why? Oh, this is, this is. Why yeah. couldn't I save them? Why oh, couldn't I save boy. them? Did he start the call by yelling, not on my watch? <laughs> not on my watch. <laughs> <laughs> and then it totally happened to your watch. Or maybe he meant he got a new iWatch. Not on my iWatch. Not on my iWatch. And there's blood in my eye watch. Why? All right. Thank you everyone for listening. As always, follow us on social media. We are EMS 20. <laughs> Jesus. We're EMS 20 slash 20 on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram at EMS 2020 show. Send us an email with your tales of success or woe to EMS 2020 podcast at gmail.com. And with that, as always, thank you for listening. We will see you next Wednesday. Possibly. Most likely. All right. Some bye. Probably. <laughs>